0: Hello, and welcome to The Learner Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author Jenny Anderson. A recent survey of 361 UK head teachers from both state and independent schools asked a few simple questions. One, does the education system help learners develop a love of learning? Two, does it help students acquire life skills? Three, does it develop knowledge? Take some time to estimate what percentage you think answered each. Again, these are some of the leading educators in the country, and the categories are love of learning, skills for life, and knowledge. The answers this esteemed group of educators offered were shocking. 8% said the system delivers a love of learning, 3% said it delivered life skills,
1: and 41% said it delivered knowledge. In essence, they didn't surprise me. What did surprise me was just how miserable the figures were just how condemning people were of the system.
0: This episode is about what to do to
1: try and change that.
0: My guests are Sarah Fletcher, High Mistress of St. Paul's Girls School, a high achieving independent school in West London. That was her commenting on the stats. And Peter Hyman, co-director of Big Education. Big Education is a multi-academy trust and a social enterprise trying to change UK education to one that embraces not just head, but head, heart and hand. Peter was also the co-founder and first head teacher of School 21 a school in Stratford, East London, a very deprived area for kids aged 4 to 18, which is known for its innovation and for delivering a broad, rich education to students who too often don't get one. Peter and Sarah are hell-bent on changing the way we assess students in this country, and they come at it from two distinct vantage points. St. Paul's is the top-ranked academic school in the UK, and Peter works in the state sector with a range of schools, students, and needs. The conversation covers why we need to change the system we have, The stats I just read you are pretty telling, and yet there's so much more, but we also discuss what we should be assessing and how we do that. We talk about changes Sarah's making at St. Paul's and things every school in the country can do right now to get closer to an education of head, heart and hand. I hope you enjoy the show. Peter Hyman and Sarah Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us. great to be here. Peter, I'm going to start with you. Tell us briefly what is wrong with our system of assessment.
2: Well, I think all of us as parents and as educators want a broad educational offer and curriculum for our children. And I think that's more so as we've learned from COVID about how to keep going all of our own children and the ones in our schools. And if we want to develop therefore the whole person and the whole child then it seems to me that you can't then only assess a very narrow subset of the academics which is what we do at the moment so we talk about an education of head heart and hand and it seems to us you therefore need to evidence and give recognition that every child has developed in head heart and hand and so that's what we need to do and that applies to the children and young people in sarah's school Uh, which is an independent school as well as the state schools that we serve. Equally, we need a broad education. Underneath that, there are a whole series of reasons to do with mental health, to do with what's often called the forgotten third, that a third of young people have to fail these GCSEs because of the sort of norm distribution. So they come out after 12 years of education with a few numbers that are branded as failures by the government. So there's a lot wrong with how we do the exam, but fundamentally, we've got to assess more than we do, and we've got to assess it in different ways, not just written exams in a stuffy sports hall, 30 of them when you're 16, there are more sophisticated ways of assessing young people, some of which are done quite happily in universities already.
0: Sarah, you commissioned a report from the Headmasters and Headmistresses Conference, which is an association of the heads of 361 independent schools, which revealed some pretty damning data. When asked, does the education system help learners develop a love of learning? 8% said yes, acquire life skills, Three percent said yes. Develop self-determination. Five percent said yes. Acquire knowledge, arguably the one thing that this system should be good at, 41 percent. Did these numbers
1: surprise you? Actually, if I can just correct that although a large number of independent schools filled in the survey, in fact, the majority of schools who filled it in were from the state sector. So it was a really rounded survey. And no, in essence, they didn't surprise me. What did surprise me was just how miserable the figures were just how condemning people were of the system. And it wasn't just on that. It was the very, very low schools that were given to developing mental health and well-being, physical well-being as well. And also a real sense that the curriculum assessment is not reaching into diverse groups and therefore it's not favouring very large sectors of the young community. And I think it was a really, really clear indictment of what we're currently doing.
0: The young people
1: at your school, where is it failing them? Well, on a very basic level, I think for for a lot of people, it's not stretching and challenging, actually, because although it's asking people to learn a lot of information, it's not actually asking them to think deeply about it. the questions, because we need an assessment system, apparently, that um, is so easy to mark, it means that the answers need to be pretty predetermined and uniform. And what that means is that there's very little room for self-exploration, for creativity, for fresh thinking, and for people to think that they have really understood, put an effort into something. On a different level, I think it is failing to empower young people. For my students, it would be right the way across the piece that we can see it at very high levels of anxiety. And I think the only way that we're going to be able to bring teenagers into a better state of well-being is to make them feel as if, one, their own circumstances are being recognised and they're being empowered to be the young people that they are, empowered to be the teenagers that they are, but also that they should feel empowered to be able to engage with some of the really deep questions of the world and that they should feel, therefore, that the education that we're providing gives them lifelong learning, the ability to interact positively with the world around them. And really importantly, the ability to change the world around them if that's what they want to do, because that feeds back into the mental well-being of all students.
2: Could I just add to that? Because... You know, there's a lot written about the 100-year life now. Children born now might live, God willing, 100 years. So as, as Sarah says, the key requirement of school is to develop a sense of lifelong learning and a love of learning. So if the systems we're operating in, particularly the exam system, switches people totally off learning, which it does for large numbers, so that once they leave school, they just don't want to sort of go back into learning and they need to detox for many years, then that's a terrible indictment in our system and not preparing them for the life that they're going to lead.
0: So why isn't the system moving if it's so bad?
2: The simplicity of the current system, that's the first point. So that lots of people have used it as a proxy. And the problem with that as the proxy is that currency is going out the window. So employers used to say: if you've gone through your hurdles of GCC. A-level, a degree from a good university, you are kind of exactly the sort of people they want. They're now in increasing numbers, going qualifications blind, and they're saying the 2-1 from a Russell Group university does not tell us that you've got all these problem-solving, collaboration, communication skills that they're looking for in the workplace. So, you know, the argument 10 years ago was... You know, this is a pretty bad system, but actually let's just get our head down because it's going to be good for the young people and it will set them up for life. So you've got to eat your spinach, as it were, and it will be worth it one day. But that's not the case anymore. So that reason is breaking down. The other big factor is university entrance. We've got to work with them in order to not see GCSEs as the best proxy for sort of culling people at the first hurdle, but to look at the child and the young person in a more rounded way?
1: I think all of our conversations, Peter, mine, others, with CBI, business leaders, others, suggest that they are really willing for change. All of our discussions as well with universities of all types suggest that they're really willing for change too. I think the pandemic has had a really impressive impact upon the way universities are operating because they had to change their systems of assessment. And by this, I'm talking more about the pen and paper driven Russell Group universities as were, but they're not going back into that system. They have found rather that new methods of assessment, open book assessment, challenge types of assessment have really inspired not only the students, but also the tutors and have better outcomes. And that's really important too. But I think there are two myths that really need busting if we're to move this forward. One of them, and the most important one, is that we are suggesting that no assessment at 16, and we're not. The second one is that there is a sense that any alternative assessment is ipso facto lacking in rigour. And that is something which, again, I would absolutely deny that we are looking at ways and we're trailing different ways and Peter's really involved in this of trying to make sure that any future assessment is rigorous that it does have credibility with employers with universities with parents that in fact what we're thinking what we're talking about is encouraging deeper learning in fact in many ways more rigorous approaches to learning than the current system in fact allows, I think that's tremendously important. I think the second myth that we have to bust is that curriculum reform is the peripheral activity of a lunatic fringe. And absolutely it's not. I mean, my report showed that there are so many in the independent and the state sector. The conversations that we've been having, Peter, particularly through rethinking assessment, just show how many schools and how many teachers are engaged. Teacher training institutes, employers, universities. So I would say that the biggest block is the kind of fear that if we change things, we're going to disadvantage the people who are in the middle of that change. And I really respect that. So we've got to be careful, we've got to be cautious, it's got to be incremental. And I think that government sees itself, and I can understand where it's coming from, but as holding the threads of the whole educational edifice together. And that edifice has relied for so many years upon GCSEs and A-levels. So culturally, it's a very difficult ask to say, let's shift the key building blocks. But I think that's where the stop is currently resting, is with government, and that what we need to do is to suggest to them that, in fact, there is a confluence of opinion, there is a confluence of need. And what we're not doing is damaging the rigour of a current system. We're actually improving it.
0: There's a tremendous debate around what to assess and how to assess it, and whether we can even do that particularly well. Peter, you designed a school from scratch. Within the constraints of the system, what did you come up with?
2: I mean, the EPQ, I think, is a good place to start. And I know Sarah and I sort of share share a view on this, that that this is well respected by universities. It's worth half a an A level. You can do it also at different stages on on your journey. You can do one one when you're younger as well. And that is an own personal project. And that's something that you can develop. You can produce an artifact or an essay at the end, but it's something that's a real passion and interest for you. And when we opened our sixth form, for example, we got every student to do an EPQ and to follow their own passion. Now, that could be universal. In the world that we're talking about, where you have a better assessment system, you could say that every young person is supported in developing their own personal project that might go towards 10 or 15, 20% of your final credits, if you like, to the qualification that you get. And that's something that develops your dispositions as a learner, it develops your research capacity, and it develops your ability to create something that's worthwhile. And also, because it's done in a rigorous way, you've got to log as you go along your reflections as a learner of what you found difficult and what you overcame, and did you have a good inquiry question, and how did you adapt it? So that's one example that I think is very powerful. There are obviously other examples around at the moment. Use of AI, for example, having online adaptive technology for English and maths assessment. They're already trialing that in Wales and Scotland. There are different forms of moderated teacher assessment. Teacher assessment often gets a bad name, but obviously it's done very rigorously already in the creative arts, where... You know, the art teacher will assess a student or the drama teacher, and then that's either sent off or moderated in video form by people who are trained to do that. So there are lots of different ways. And I also refer again to universities. I mean, Sarah's already mentioned open book exams. If you're doing a medicine or engineering degree at many universities, you're assessed with about 12 different methodologies, from observations to essays to vivas of different types to collaborative Even at one of the most traditional universities and the most traditional subjects, so if you're studying history at Edinburgh University, you are given marks towards your final degree on how well you chair a seminar that you conduct on history. So even in those circumstances, they've got more variety than we do in the school system.
0: And Sarah, are you piloting
1: anything in this space, alternative assessment at St. Paul's? We are indeed. And one of the key things that we're doing is working actually with Chatham House and with OCR to try and develop a new qualification in sustainability and global civics. And we're looking at design thinking, problem solving, complex problem solving, again as a methodology. So it's inspired by the idea of the EPQ that it's uh, an open field in terms of where you wish to put your research. But there are methodologies behind it, which are going to help inform your thinking in other contexts, which is really important. And what we're hoping and what we're aiming for is interdisciplinarity. What we're hoping for is really high quality engagement with the UN sustainability goals, with the problems that the current world is facing. Again, going back to that theme of empowering young people. But giving them a platform which they can then use to move forward. So I think that's really exciting. So you could imagine forms of assessment which have got an EPQ, which have got sort of design thinking, which have got other elements, as Peter's described, alongside, you don't need to get rid of all pen and paper exams, but what we're talking about is multimodal assessment, which means that you are assessing different skills and dispositions and you're encouraging those skills which are really going to give young people the power and the authority to move into a a very modern digital workplace which I don't think the current system is giving them and thereby what we're doing also is recognising the talents in a broader pool of young people because currently we're really only recognising the skills of a fraction of the young people through the exams that we're actually assessing Put in a whole raft of of, of different things, collaborative, presentational, oracy, research-based skills, and you're opening it up to success for a far wider range of people, as well as opening much more life opportunities, I would argue.
0: Where does the sustainability and global civics sit inside St. Paul's? Is that a GCSE? Is that an A-level? Is that an add-on? So we're piloting it next year in the sixth form. As an add-on, so you would do three A levels plus that instead of an EPQ?
1: Well, it effectively is an EPQ. It's just a different style of EPQ. So, so we are going to assess it through the EPQ system, but it's got a slightly different methodology on it. It's because it's very difficult to get new qualifications through Ocqual, and so what this is doing is piggybacking onto the old, but it is an interesting experiment and something different. I'm really, really interested, and I think we need to be as a country, including a lot more digital exploration for young people this is their world and it's the world of the future and it's so exciting but it's also very daunting if you haven't got those skills so we are looking very hard at St Paul's at equipping every young person so that they are digital natives And that we're providing opportunities for people who want to move off into technology in all its manifestations to have that confidence and those skills to do that. So we're writing alternative GCSE courses. They aren't GCSEs, they're our own courses, one in computer science and the other in creative technologies. And the take up is really big. It's very buoyant. And the students are very much enjoying the challenge of grappling with problems, developing their skills and really, really looking at what the digital world can do, uh, because that is the future. And we're really not doing that within our current curriculum.
0: So St. Paul's has its own computer science GCSE and its own creative tech GCSE? Yeah.
1: Amongst others, we've got some of our own homegrown GCSEs as well, like art, drama, music, art, history
0: does that require extra resource to then get those approved and marked and graded externally?
1: So we team up with external moderators that the school chooses, um, but but they are rigorously done. But as Peter said, I mean, there are absolutely well-tracked records of inter-school moderation in other countries, for example, in Germany, where you are looking at each other's work. And I think there's a fantastic opportunity when we're looking at assessment of putting schools together and really upskilling teachers by getting them to talk to each other, to share and to moderate their own work across schools is another very exciting opportunity.
2: And one of the things that probably as you listen to this and see coming together is this bridging of the historic and very dangerous vocational and academic divide. So that's becoming really blurred and the direction of travel of rethink assessment is to say that if you have a menu of options of courses, some of which are single subject as now, some are interdisciplinary as Sarah says, some are applied learning in a variety of forms, technology straddles all of those, then every student you'd make it compulsory to pick at least one from those buckets. So you couldn't go on a sort of pure academic traditional track because that's not going to set you up for the world, nor would you just be pigeonholed into a vocational track. There's going to be far more of a blurring. And think of the world where you've got a bit like the IB does. And obviously in, in other countries, in the States, you have majors and minors. So you have, you know, longer courses and shorter so you can have more breadth. You've then got some academic, some vocational, some interdisciplinary, some applied. And you do them when ready, which is another factor. So between the ages of 14 and 18, you're doing different courses and completing them at different rates rather than in a big bang, all of them when you're 16. So if you put all of that together, you've got a system that can be so much better tailored to the needs of every young person.
0: So let me push back on the equity point, because I think the most compelling argument against changing the system is the equity one. In the U.S., the SAT and ACT are heavily correlated to income. Stanford just did a huge study that shows the college essay, which is a lovely form of assessment that is not a standardized test, which should lend itself to freedom, is even more correlated to family income. I really have tremendous faith in wealthy parents to always find a leg up in every system, for their kids. Maybe that's just the brutal reality of life. I would say the EPQ is one where parental education, parental resource, parental time will help that project. How do we account for that only a few people get that?
1: Yeah, I think there are very clear issues to do with equity, but it's complicated. I think one of the things that my report showed was that there's very low feeling amongst the teaching profession that the current system is motivating students. And I think a system which doesn't motivate is bound to mean that those who are from less wealthy backgrounds are the least motivated. Because you're right, I think parents, others, students, their own internal expectations will carry on pushing them through whatever system is put in front of them. But motivation is really important and relevance, which is really what Peter's been talking about, which is your multimodal approach, your real world approach, your development of skills approach, is perhaps part of your answer towards a more equitable system. Also, it enables the teachers to be more flexible in their approaches. And I think the current curriculum, the current modes of assessment do offer a degree of flexibility, but particularly with Progress 8, it really does stick you. And what that means is that there's less ability written within the system to enable young people from different communities, different walks of life, to feel that it's actually responding to their desires and their ambitions. And I think that's really important too. But a third thing that I would say is that we also need to think about teachers in all of this. And one of the key things is a really, I think, much more enlightened way for conducting research within schools and across schools of encouraging lifelong learning for teachers as well. To develop the chartered college, to develop and re-empower the teacher training institutes to work much more effectively within schools. And I would broaden that also, and through parents as well, into the business communities and the other communities around us and the universities around us, that schools, in fact, need to become much more open, much more porous, and the education system needs to invite the outside world in. Because in so doing, I think what you will find is that you will find more opportunities for a greater breadth of young people right the way across the country to be able to engage effectively with the school. I also think, as my fourth plank, is that there are real opportunities now post-COVID. We've all learned about Zoom. We've all learned about different interactive platforms. And one of the exciting things, which I'm trying to develop through the Chatham House initiative, is the notion of an interactive platform which enables people to share their excitement, share their ideas and indeed share expertise from different parts of the country, indeed, possibly even from different parts of the world. So putting people together means that you can share, I think, a lot more in terms of expertise, ideas, and resources. So I'm not in any way underestimating the challenges to education. And my fifth plank, and then I really will shut up and allow Peter to come in, is that I think there's a responsibility of government here too. We had a pandemic. And we realised just how digitally ill-equipped schools and young people were and just how digitally ill-equipped homes were as well. I think there's a massive responsibility as we move further into the 21st century that, in fact, a big thought needs to be given to providing proper accessibility of real interactive, digitally enabled communications and what those properly safeguarded platforms should look like and making sure that all young people have access to that because I do think that's going
2: to make a major difference. Can I just add, add to that on the equity point, because I think it's absolutely crucial we get this right, and it's one of our biggest criticisms, as Sarah says, of the current system. Government plays a big part in this. So to move away from the system at the moment where a third are labelled as failures, because where the where the grade boundaries are put in the exams, I think is incredibly important. The recognition of the strengths of every child across knowledge, skills and attributes immediately Elevate some of those things that have been totally disregarded in the past and some of the strengths of some of the students who don't get on sometimes in the traditional academic sense, but have got a whole breadth of skills and achievements that they can showcase if given the chance to do so. And so the idea of a learner profile, which we're constructing at the moment, which is a broader record of those strengths and achievements, I think is absolutely crucial. And it fits into what I was saying earlier about employers. So when I spoke to the CEO of one of the biggest publishers in this country quite recently, they said, I, we keep interviewing people from Oxbridge who've gone down a very traditional route and those from what are sometimes seen as second sort of tier universities. And I keep employing the second tier university ones. And I'm wondering why. And, and when I thought about it, the answer is often employers use the phrase, they have something about them. And that's something about them was that broader sense of disposition, skills, sort of hunger to change things, motivation. They may have come from a more diverse background and have got a different perspective on life. So all of those things amount to a broader sense of who they are as a rounded individual, which if we get this learner profile right, I think goes a lot of the way to counter the equity point, which is it's not just about the narrow academic success nor is it about packing your CV with stuff that middle-class families can do more than if you like working-class families.
1: Absolutely crucial is what Peter mentioned about vocational qualifications and vocational education. We really have created a two-tier system as you referred where we've privileged academic over vocational and we are implicitly saying that one is better than the other and I think that that has been incredibly harmful to young people to the world in fact that we're living in and the society that we're living And I think we've got to do far better at making sure that there's parity of esteem that there's a real understanding that the skills that go with those vocational qualifications can be really high quality and high class. And you only need to look aside to Germany and to Switzerland to see how you can do that really well and, and to us to see how you can do it really badly.
2: What's in the learner profile exactly? We've got a, an emerging prototype. So what has it got in it? It's got a wheel of dispositions in the centre. And there's actually quite a lot of consensus across the world about the four C's, sometimes the three C's of creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, communication, lots of consensus. So how do you evidence that? Every child can upload stuff that shows that they can do that. There's a discursive element which could then morph into a personal statement for university. What are my strengths? What what do I need to develop? What are my motivations in life? Really rich stuff that you can top up very often. Then there's a whole set of qualifications, some on the core, the basics, literacy and numeracy, some on courses that we've talked about in this podcast about interdisciplinary and single subjects, the EPQ and your passion and what that looks like, and it would be all underpinned by a portfolio of work. So that each of the sections of the profile can draw down to show well that's my evidence, this is what I've created here, this is my best essay when I've I've done really well at English, this is some other achievement that I've done outside of school. So it's then all put together. It's, if you like, a glorified, souped up LinkedIn profile plus portfolio that a young person can curate at school and then take with them for the rest of their life and add to on this sort of lifelong learning journey.
1: And I would add to that one thing, which is service. And charity. So the idea, and I think this is really well embedded in America, and I think we need to embed it more here. And I think it's really important for self-esteem as well as for creating a more cohesive, empathetic community, and that is service to others.
0: So this is so interesting. I listened to that learner profile and I love it. So, you know, sort of preaching to the converted here. But as you describe that learner profile, I, again, am thinking privileged kids are going to find a way to make that glorified LinkedIn profile look better, but also they will have had the experiences that allow it to be better, unless schools can really step up and help with that. Tell me why I'm wrong.
1: Okay, I'm going to quote to you Lord Baker City Technology Colleges, and I'm going to invite you to go and have a look, because they are amazing. Now, I think, if I remember the figures rightly, that a very large proportion, I was going to say 60% of those students have either decided that they don't get on with standard education, or they've fallen foul behaviorally, of the schools which they uh, were in before they've gone into those um, colleges and it is a magical atmosphere and what you find there is that there are links with industry which means that there are far more digital opportunities available to them there are far more programs which are directly linked with the world of work I watched a lesson where there were at least 40 students in one room with, I think there was one member of staff present, all of them were looking at a TV screen where they were being taught by an air control expert from Mexico about air control. And they were absolutely riveted. You could have heard a pin drop and they were so engaged. So I think what we need to do is to look up and look out and stop saying it's impossible and to look at the good practice, which is already there and say, yes, we can make this work. It's a big problem. but if we do tackle it in a creative fashion and we look at what's already working we actually can make a big difference.
2: And just to echo that it's not about collecting a series of experiences that middle class young people have already a sort of leg up on. It is to tell the story of who you are as a learner and how you've developed and, and what you can do in certain areas and your interests and passions and motivations and that after all is what employers are looking for and what's important to you thriving in life. It would be a mistake and it wouldn't work if it is just you know, can I say that I've been to the theater 10 times more than someone who couldn't afford to go to the theater? That's not the point of this.
0: So many jobs now actually require applicants to take tests. Honestly, the sort of application process is a logic test. It could be an IQ test. So there's a slightly counterintuitive point, which is, should we be good at taking tests to be preparing kids for the future of
2: work? Those aren't tests of the sort of pen and paper we call Those are strengths-based assessment, which echo exactly what we're talking about, which is they're not satisfied with the pen and paper tests that everyone's taking, or even a degree from a Russell Group university. They're saying, we want to get underneath. Are you a problem solver? Do you have ingenuity? Can you communicate? Are you a collaborator? And that's what the assessment days are at these companies. And in a way, we should be learning from them and thinking, can we take some of those insights back into schools so that we've got a broader way of assessing what really matters?
0: Okay. so GCSEs get banned in the next five years. True or false?
1: They transmogrify into something much, much better. of A whole variety, as we've been describing, of multimodal assessment and much lighter touch. Because I do think going back to the mental health piece, In fact, what we need to be talking about really is both A-levels and GCSEs and the elision with university entry. It needs to be a whole piece, really, if we're being honest about it. We are the only country that tests so intensively at 16 plus. Again, that's A misinterpretation where people feel that uh, people like Peter and I are saying that other countries don't test at 16. Yes, they do, but in a very, very different, much more light touch manner. And I think we've got to be really careful before we impose upon 16 year olds and then again at 18 such high stakes, such heavy handed assessment. And that we really do need to give young people the time to play, to explore, to be creative, to discover, to be And also to be happy in the middle of all of that, which is so important because we're losing that in the current system.
2: Agree or disagree, Peter, five years GCSEs have
0: morphed into something
1: slightly
2: better? You know, we've talked a bit about this. It's between 14 and 18. I think you will take different assessments and evidence what you can do in different ways. Some better done online. Some maybe some written exams, other modes of assessment. But you'll accumulate that. Therefore, if you change school at 16, you will have accumulated enough particularly on the basics you need to show for your next stage that you're literate and numerate but you don't need a vast amount of so saying of other stuff at 16 and then repeated at 18. so i think there'll be a sort of 14 to 18 pathway where you accumulate those different qualifications and sets of evidence
0: and sarah one more question for you you have a very particular high achieving population And it's an independent school and you're very outspoken against the system you're in. You have as much freedom as anyone, probably, to take it in a different direction. You're not doing the IB like a Godolphin, and you haven't taken away a GCSE a la Wimbledon. Why not do more with what you have? Or do you feel you're doing that with these piloting schemes?
1: We're doing an awful lot, actually, more with what we have. We have got general studies in the 14 to 16 curriculum. We have got, as I had mentioned before, school-directed courses. And what we're trying to do is to grow those so that we're having more. But what I want it to be is incremental. I want it to be well thought through, clearly developed, Properly put together so that it's really going to achieve the results that we want. But over the time that I've been here as head at the school, we've added in three school director courses: art history, um, creative technologies, computer science. As I say, I know that we will be adding more and we're developing the CPQ. So what we're doing is we're working with what we've got to develop something really exciting. We also put in a hugely broad curriculum into the sixth form. So we have an elective program whereby students are opting for things which are not. Examined at all, but which are really interesting. And in fact, brilliantly, we're doing those in collaboration next year with the boys' school as well. So we're going to be bringing in different ideas, different thought processes, different opportunities for people, which is no exam anywhere near it. Um, we're also developing entrepreneurship. Through the sixth form program and we're helping people to develop in that way, we've put service into the sixth form, all of our students are doing that and that's working right the way down through the school as well, so that they have opportunities our partnership program is growing like topsy, and we have so many opportunities for people to broaden their skills their knowledge their understanding in all sorts of different diverse ways. And we have something which is wonderful which is called the senior scholarship essay which is rather like an epq but it enables all the students if they wish to in the lower six what we call the seventh to write a research piece on anything that they like and it is absolutely fabulous, the different things that they do. And I absolutely defy anybody to tell me that the rigor of those answers is not top quality in high class. From inventing, because we've got such an old heating system, she says, pointing to the radiator behind her, independently controllable radiator valves to writing essays on medieval poetry, whatever it might be. And I think, really, our curriculum is very open. It's very creative from age 11 right the way through to 18. There's more to do. It's a really exciting journey. And finally, while I'm doing a sales pitch... We're also developing a design and innovation centre, which is absolutely intended to bring together technology with not only art and design or traditional STEAM, but also with every single subject in the school, to allow it to permeate the way that we're thinking and the way they're doing things, and to allow young people to move with the way that creative technologies, new technologies are moving, and to really, really develop their understanding and to play. And that's going to be so exciting And we're opening that to our partner schools as well, because I'm always clear that whatever I do at St. Paul's should be ultimately available to other schools as well through our partnership work.
0: So I would love to go to St. Paul's. I think I'm never going to get in. And I think I'm a little old for the profile. Peter, I want to give you the last word. I'm making you prime minister for the day. Be more creative than just banning GCSEs. First three things you do with education.
2: Everything flows from the purpose. If we want a purpose that is the rounded development of every child then you've got to have a broader curriculum so we've got to go from this knowledge rich curriculum yes we believe in knowledge to something broader so we need a head heart and hand curriculum if you have a broader curriculum then you need broader assessment which we've talked about today a broad curriculum broader assessment will reinvigorate teaching because teachers will not then just be deliverers of direct instruction They will be setting up their classroom as a workshop. They will be doing philosophy lessons in the round, uh, talking about moral issues. They will have a whole series of project based learning and interdisciplinary pedagogies. So instead of 40% of teachers leaving the profession within five years, this will be a lifelong profession they want to stay because it is something so enriching. So, this new paradigm, moving from the exam factory to a richer education, is about curriculum, assessment, and teaching, and ultimately, about young people not being either bored or stressed or turned off learning, but their potential harnessed in the most exciting way
1: possible i would also institute an immediate review of education and i would involve employers universities parents students teachers i would do a whole review about what we want the future of education to look like and i would press the button and i would say we need to go now because it's going to take us time to pull it together and we need to start thinking i would also set up an independent body and i would say you are the custodian of education going forward I think it needs to be independent of government. It needs to be a non-political thing, but reporting to government, very much responsible to government. But it needs absolutely to make sure that we don't have these conversations in 10, 20 years' time, that the curriculum is constantly refreshed, reviewed, analysed, that it isn't fixed in amber, but that it's actually capable of moving because the world's moving really fast And we need to be able, by incremental change, by careful research, by understanding what's going on, by looking carefully at pedagogy as well, that we're moving with those times properly and effectively, rather than having to have big discussions about whether we're abolishing something or not.
2: Look, in the state sector, there's huge pressure from Ofsted, which should obviously be reformed dramatically, and high stakes exams. But even so, we need to find ways of doing more than we're doing at the moment. What Tim Brighouse, one of the education gurus, says is finding the gaps in the hedges. And there are two or three things any school can do, even without the changes that we want. One we've talked about, which is more students doing the EPQ, which is really important. The other is no student needs to do more than eight GCSEs. So one of the decisions that we took at School 21, the school I co-founded, was to say, in place of extra GCSEs for half a day a week, students would go out into the real world doing a placement in an organisation that isn't examined, but is at such a rich experience. It's not just sort of work experience photocopying. It's a proper project. And they get so much out of doing that. So it's those sort of decisions that you can make now, even within the constraints, that start to give a more rounded education to young people.
0: Thank you so much, Peter and Sarah. Thank you very much. Thank you. I left this conversation angry at how totally messed up this country's education system is. As Peter said repeatedly, the system assesses students on a narrow academic set of competencies and it fails a third of them at age 16. This feels cruel. I'm also mad because I have kids in this system in excellent schools, which they love, but it breaks my heart that as they get older, more sophisticated and more curious about the world, the system in which they are operating will get narrower, more predictable, less relevant, and significantly more stressful. Kids are neurobiologically wired to learn. We have them in classes for over 20,000 hours, and we should be designing rich, challenging, exciting environments for them, not just preparing them for an endless battery of high-stakes exams. By every measure, the case for change is unassailable. Kids and teachers are both miserable. Neither has any autonomy, which humans want and need. Students are not being prepared for jobs or life, and while core academics are critical, The idea of assessing them by preparing them to give just the right answer to attain the necessary 12 marks on a super stressful exam they spend three years preparing for is a major disservice to young people. As Sarah points out, reforming GCSEs and A-levels does not mean sacrificing rigor. It means updating what rigor looks like to match the reality of a world that is digitized, automated, and fast moving. Reforming the system also does not mean abandoning assessment. That's how teachers figure out who's learning what. It just means it's 2022 and it's time to get more creative about what we ask kids to learn, how they demonstrate their learning and how we codify that record. I recall taking my kids when they were little to a lecture on the ethics of AI. This makes me sound like a supermom, but the truth is my babysitter canceled. I was a bit nervous because they were clearly too young to be in a university hall listening to an academic lecture about a very abstract concept, but they loved it. They sensed they were doing something important and they stepped up. One even asked a question. I sort of had the letter. It was a reminder that learning takes place everywhere, but also a reminder of the opportunity costs schools face. If you spend three years teaching GCSEs and two years teaching A-levels, you gain something for sure, but you also give up a lot of opportunities to inspire, intrigue, challenge, motivate, and annoy, the stuff of which helps young people figure out who they are and how they fit in the world. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.